What does that mean? As readers, we eagerly probe each piece of information for significance, constantly wondering, what is this meant to tell me? It's said people can go 40 days without food, 3 days without water, and about 35 seconds without finding meaning in something. Truth is, 35 seconds is an eternity compared to the warp speed with which our subconscious brain rips through data. It's a biological imperative. We're always on the hunt for meaning, not in the metaphysical, what is the true nature of reality sense, but in the far more primal, more specific, very specific sense of Joe left without his usual morning coffee. I wonder why. Betty is always on time. How come she's half an hour late? That annoying dog next door barks its head off every morning. Why is it so quiet today? We're always looking for the why beneath what's happening on the surface. Not only because our survival might depend on it, but because it's exhilarating. It makes us feel something, namely curiosity. Having our curiosity peaked is visceral, and it leads to something even more potent, the anticipation of knowledge we are now hungry for. A sensation caused by that pleasurable rush of dopamine. Because being curious is necessary for survival. What's that rustling in the bushes? Nature encourages it. And what better way to encourage curiosity than to make it feel good? This is why what your curiosity is roused as a reader. You have an emotional vested interest in finding out what happens next. And bingo. You feel that delicious sense of urgency. Hello, dopamine. And all that all good stories instantly ignite. Do you want to do you want an interpreter with that? So what happens when you can't anticipate what might happen next? When you can't even make sense of what's happening now? Usually you decide to find something else to read pronto. I've often thrown up my hands in frustration when reading a well-intentioned manuscript wishing it came with an interpreter. I could feel the author's burning intent. I knew she was trying to tell me something important. Trouble was, I had no idea what. Think of how exasperating it is in the real world when someone begins a long, rambling story. Did I tell you about Fred? He was supposed to come over last night, but it was raining, and like... A dolt, I forgot to shut my windows and my new couch got soaked. I paid a fortune for it. I worried about hun- I worried about that now it'll mildew like the old clothes in my grandma's attic. She's so dingy, but I can't blame her. She's over a hundred. I hope I have her genes. She was never sick a day in her life, but lately I've begun to wonder. Because my joints hurt every time it rains. Boy, they sure were aching last night while I was waiting for Fred. End story. By now you're probably nervously jiggling your foot and thinking, what are you talking about and why should I care? That is, if you're still listening. It's the same with the first page of a story. If we don't have a sense of what's happening and why it matters to the protagonist, we're not going to read it. 
After all, have you ever gone into a bookstore, pulled a novel off the shelf, read the first few pages and thought, you know, this is kind of dull and I don't really care about these people, but I'm sure the author tried really hard and probably has something important to say. So I'm going to buy it, read it, and recommend it to all my friends. No. You're beautifully, brutally heartless. I'm betting you never give the author's hard work or good intentions a second thought. And that's as it should be. As a reader, you owe the writer absolutely nothing. You read their book solely at your own pleasure, where it stands or falls on its own merit. If you don't like it, you simply slip it back into the shelf and slide in out another. What are you hunting for on that first page? Are you consciously analyzing each sentence one by one? Are you aware of what triggers and the finely calibrated tipping point when you decide to either read the book or look for another? Of course not. That is, not consciously. In the same way, you don't have to think about which muscles you need to move in order to blink. Choosing a book uh, is a perfectly coordinated co reflex orchestrated by your cognitive unconscious. It's muscle memory, except in this case, the muscle is question, in question is the brain. Okay, let's say that the first sentence has indeed grabbed you. What next? What is the story about? The unspoken question that's now bouncing around in your brain is this. What is this book about? Sounds like a big question. It is, which is why we'll be exploring it in depth in the next chapter. So can you answer it on the first page? Rarely. After all, when you meet someone new, you can, can you know everything there is to know about that person on the first date? Absolutely not. Can you feel like you do? Absolutely. Story, likewise. And to that end, here are the three basic things readers relentlessly hunt for as they read that first page. Number one, whose story is it? Number two, what's happening here? Number three, what's at stake? Let's examine these three elements and how they work in tandem to answer the question. Whose story is it? Everyone knows a story needs a main character, otherwise known as a protagonist. Even ensemble, ensemble pieces tend to have one central character. No need to discuss it, right? But here's something writers often don't know. In a story, what the reader feels is driven by what the protagonist feels. Story is visceral. We climb inside the protagonist's skin and become sensate, feeling what he feels. Otherwise, we have no port of entry, no point of view through which to see, elevate, and experience the world and the author has plunked us into. In short, without a protagonist, everything is neutral. And as we'll see in chapter 3 in a story as in life, there's no such thing as neutral. Which means we need to meet the protagonist as soon as possible, hopefully in the first paragraph. What's happening here? It stands to reason then that something must be happening, beginning on the first page, that the protagonist is affected by something that gives us a glimpse of the big picture. As John Irving once said, whenever possible, tell the whole story of the novel in the first sentence. Glib? Yeah, okay, but a worthy goal to shoot for. The big picture cues us to the problem the protagonist will spend the story struggling with.
For instance, in a classic romantic comedy, it's Will Boy Get Girl? Thus we gauge every event against that one question. Does it help him get closer to her or does it hurt her prospe- his prospects? And often, is she really the right girl for him? Which brings us to the third thing that readers are hunting for on that first page, the thing that, together with the first two, ignites the all-important sense of urgency. What's at stake? What hangs in the balance? Where's the conflict? Conflict is story's lifeblood. Another seeming no-brainer. But there's a bit of helpful fine print that often goes unread. We're not talking about just any conflict, but conflict that is specific to the protagonist's quest. From the first sentence, readers morph into bloodhounds, relentlessly trying to sniff out what is at stake here and how will it impact the protagonist. Sure, they're not quite certain what his or her quest is yet, but that's what they are hoping to find out by asking these questions. Point being, something must be at stake, beginning on the first page. The obvious question. Can all three of these things be there on the first page? You bet. In 2007, literary theorist Stanley Fish published an editorial in the New York Times that answers just that question. He was rushing through an airport with only minutes to spare and nothing to read. He decided to dash into the bookstore and choose a book based solely on its first sentence. Here's the winner from Elizabeth George's What Came Before He Shot Her. Joel Campbell, 11 years old at the time, began his descent into murder with a bus ride. Imagine that. All three questions were answered in a single sentence. Number one, whose story is it? Joel Campbell's. Number two, what's happening here? He's on a bus, which has somehow triggered what will will result in murder. Talk talk about all is not as as it seems. Number three, what is at stake? Joel's life, someone else's life, and who knows what else. Who wouldn't read on to find out? The fact that Joel is going to be involved in a murder not only gives us an idea of what the book is about, it provides the context, the yardstick by which we are then able to measure the significance and emotional meaning of everything that comes before he shoots her. Which is important. Because after that first sentence, the novel follows the hapless, brave, poverty-stricken Joel through inner-city London for well over 600 pages before the murder in question. But along the way, we're riveted, weighing everything against what we know is going to happen, always wondering if this is the event that will catapult Joel into his fate and analyzing which why each twist and turn pushes him toward the inevitable murder. Here's something even more interesting. Without that opening sentence, what came before he shot her would be a very, very different story. Things would happen, but we'd have no real idea what, what, what they were building toward. So regardless of how well written it is, and it is, it wouldn't be nearly as engaging. Why? Because as neuropsychiatrist Richard Restack writes, Within the brain, things are always evaluated within a specific context. It is context that bestows meaning, and it is meaning that your brain is wired to sniff out. After all, if stories are simulations of our brain's plumb 
for useful information in case we ever find ourselves in a sim similar situation, we sort of need to know what the situation is. By giving us a glimpse of the big picture, George provides a yardstick that follows us, uh, allows us to decode the meaning of everything that befalls Joel. Such yardsticks are like a mathematical proof. They let the reader anticipate what things are adding up to, which makes them even more useful for the intrepid writer, because a story's yardstick mercilessly reveals those passages that don't seem to add up at all, unmasking them as the one thing you want to banish from your story at all costs. The Boring Parts Elmore Leonard famously said that a story is, is real life with the boring parts left out. Think of the boring parts as anything that doesn't relate to or affect your protagonist's quest. Every single thing in a story, including subplots, weather, setting, even tone, must have a clear impact on what the reader is dying to know. Will the protagonist achieve her goal? What will it cost her in the process? How will it change her in the end? What hooks us and keeps us reading is a dopamine-fueled desire to know what happens next. Without that, nothing else matters. But what about stunning prose? You may ask, what about poetic imagery? Throughout this book, he'll be doing a lot of myth-busting, exploring why so many of the most hollowed writing maxims are often more likely to lead you in the wrong direction than the right. And this, my friends, is a great myth to start with. The myth, beautiful writing trumps all. In reality, storytelling trumps beautiful writing every time. Few notions are more damaging to writers than the popular belief that writing a successful story is a matter of learning to write well. Who could argue with that? It, could, it sounds so logical, so obvious. What would the alternative be? Learning to write poorly? Ironically, writing poorly can be far less damaging than you'd think, that is, if you can tell a story. The problem with this, along with the num numerous other writing myths, is that it misses the point. In this case, writing well is taken to mean the use of beautiful language, vibrant imagery, authentic-sounding dialogue, insightful metaphors, interesting characters, and a whole lot of really vivid sensory details dribbled in along the way. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Who'd want to read a novel without it? How about the millions of readers of The Da Vinci Code? Regardless of how beloved his books may be, no one says author Dan Brown is a great writer. Perhaps most succinct and scathing is fellow and author Philip Pullman's assessment that Brown's prose is flat, stunted, and ugly, and that his books are full of completely flat and two-dimensional characters talking in utterly implausible ways to one another. So why is The Da Vinci Code one of the best-selling novels of all time? Because from the very first page, readers are dying to know what happens next. And that's what matters most. A story must have the ability to engender a sense of urgency from the first sentence. Everything else, fabulous characters, great dialogue, vivid imagery, luscious language is gravy. 
This is not to disparage great writing in any way. I love a beautifully crafted sentence as much as the next person, but make no mistake, learning to write well is not synonymous with learning to write a story. And of the two, writing well is secondary, because if the reader doesn't want to know what happens next, so what if it's well written? In the trade, such exquisitely rendered storyless novels are often referred to as a beautifully written who cares. Now that we know what hooks a reader on the first page, the question is, how do you craft a story that actually does this? Like everything in life, it's easier said than done, which is why it's a question we'll spend the rest of the book answering. Chapter 1 Checkpoint Do we know whose story it is? There must be someone through whose eyes are we, we are viewing the world. We've been plunked into, aka the protagonist, Think of your protagonist as the reader's surrogate in the world that you, the writer, are creating. Is something happening beginning on the first page? Don't just set the stage for later conflict. Jump right in with something that will affect the protagonist and so make the reader hungry to find out what the consequence will be. After all, unless something is already happening, how can you want to know what happens next? Is there conflict in what's happening? Will the conflict have a direct impact on the protagonist's quest, even though your reader might not yet know what that quest is? Is something at stake in the first page, and as important is your reader aware of what it is? Is there a sense that all is not as it seems? This is especially important if the protagonist isn't introduced in the first few pages, in which case it pays to ask, is there a growing sense of focused foreboding that will keep the reader hooked until the protagonist appears in the not-too-distant future. Can we glimpse enough of the big picture to have that all-important yardstick? It's the big picture that gives readers perspective and conveys the point of each scene, enabling them to add things up. If we don't know where the story is going, how can we tell if it's moving at all?